I just have a couple of books I'd like to review. No, really, I'm kidding. I won't, promise. Uh, I will tell you about one book, though, uh, which I saw on the bookshelf. Uh, A Joined Up Life by Andrew Cameron. Yesterday, we talked about the Christian life being hard. Uh, And I think one of the ways in which Christians learn to persevere in life is by learning what it is to love rightly, and that is what ethics is all about. Uh, This book is there for $23.95. I've managed to wangle from the bookstore that you'll get it for 20 bucks today only. Fantastic book by one of the, I think, great minds of Australian evangelicalism. Uh, Is James Piggott there? James? Where's James? Where is he? James, James, um, I've got your towel. The two most forgotten things on camp, toothbrushes and towels, both of which are problematic because the lack of either makes you stinky. Friends, I want to say um, it has been really a great pleasure being here with you these last couple days and I wanted to thank you first before I continue into my third and final talk, I wanted to thank you for being so generous and so kind as we've been Uh, wrestling with revelation I really have appreciated the way in which people have come and asked questions afterwards with great earnestness uh, and integrity I've been upfront with things that they have uh, struggled with and what they have heard from revelation and uh, I will be here for all of today uh, at least through till around about dinner time and um, more than happy just to sit down and talk or to pray with any of you uh, if you'd like that if you'd appreciate that I don't own a TV. I'm not Amish. I like Gossip Girl as much as any other 35-year-old Australian man. (laughs) Uh, But I don't own a TV, um, which means sometimes the Paget family uh, can uh, feel a little bit disengaged from many of the great rivalries in our culture. Uh, So I'm a Queenslander, for example, and yet all of my kind of uh, outrage about the outcome of the latest state of origin was entirely feigned because I didn't even see the game. I don't particularly like it. My daughter Susanna is at school at Forest Lodge Public School, an inner city, a very inner city public school because we're a very, very inner city family. And uh, one day some uh, promotional people from the Tigers, Balmain Tigers, I, that's rugby league, yes? Just thank you, that's helpful. Uh, and came round and was offering free tickets to a match. And Susanna said, no, thank you. I don't want tickets. We don't support the Tigers. We support the Swans. (laughs) Uh, One of the things about uh, not um, having a TV is that when it comes to many of the great sporting contests, we really don't take a side. It, it's not that relevant to us. I mean, we can stand and we can watch from the distance. Um, my great passions that I do like to watch are things like uh, the Tour de France, for example, um, soccer, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but with other sporting codes, we can kind of sit at a distance because they don't really concern us. We can be neutral. We can sit on the fence. But there are some things on life, in life in which you cannot be neutral. 
There are some things in life where you cannot sit in the fence. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ is one of those things because unlike the various sporting codes, Jesus' Lordship is universal. It concerns every single person. He makes a claim on the life of everyone whom he has made. And so you cannot be neutral, as in many things in life, such as war, to be passive is actually not to be neutral. It is to take a stance. And today we're going to look at the final three letters in the book of Revelation. It may seem early to speak about final, given that uh, the book has so much left in it, but really the rest of the book is just a, a, a spelling out, a recapitulation of the themes that we find in these same letters. Having read them, you'll be able to grasp the rest of the book. But we're going to look at three letters to three churches, each of which have simply taken a different stance in relation to Jesus. There is a church that is cold towards him. There is a church that is hot with all the fires of love. And there is a church which is lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold, just lukewarm in the middle. Neither wet nor dry, just moist. I was given a word to say today. Having now fulfilled my social obligations, we can move on with things that actually matter. Let's talk about, let us talk firstly about the church that is cold, the church of Sardis. And it is a church which is cold towards him because it is a church that pretends. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. I know your works. This is one of the great themes of these three letters. I know your works. Repeated again and again. I know your works. And this is significant for it is impossible to take a stance towards Jesus and not have it shown in what you do. There is no such thing as a private faith when the faith of which we speak is a trust in the one who is Lord of all, who is a public king. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Sardis was a great city. From Pergamum, about whom we heard yesterday, it was 50 kilometers to Sardis, who stood at the junction of five major roads. Uh, Northwest to Pergamum, west 80 kilometers to Smyrna, southwest 100 kilometers to Ephesus, southeast 50 kilometers to Philadelphia, east to the center of Phrygia. It was a central and fertile and wealth-producing location. It was along the extreme edge of Greek civilization. 
In AD 17, the great city was damaged by an earthquake but recovered through the generosity of the Roman Emperor Tiberius. There were no hints from this letter to the church that there were any kind of external oppression or internal compromise. This was a rich and comfortable church in a rich and comfortable city and yet they are cold. They have a reputation for being alive but you are dead said Jesus. And Jesus knows this, for he is described as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Remember, I talked about the seven spirits of God being the one uh, way of describing the Holy Spirit functionally and figuratively. Seven, because of the number of completeness, but also because it implies a complete care and oversight for the church. The seven spirits, the Holy Spirit is present in each of these spirits, sustaining them, working within them, identifying with them. And there are seven stars, the seven angels who overlook. And Jesus is the one who has these. The Spirit is his. The angels are his. And so he knows. There is no hiding things from Jesus. Not even even whether you are actually dead when you appear so visibly to be alive. What kind of church has this reputation belied by reality? What kind of church seems so full of life but is in actuality so dead? What seems clear is that they are a church which does things which impresses other people. They are a church which lives in a way which appears to those around them and perhaps even the culture itself as being a thriving center, an energetic church perhaps. Perhaps it was a church which had gained a place in society so that it had attracted even certain strata within the aristocracy or the wealthy. So it looked like a church making real progress. But what impresses all these does not impress Jesus. I know your works. Verse 4 suggests that... uh, the bulk of the church had in some way soiled their clothes. The implication being that while they name Jesus as their king, they are not living with Jesus as their king. They are indulging in every form of pagan immorality that is part of the world. They are thoroughly immersed in that world. And this idea of the name of Jesus is really important. Because although it's disguised in the English, this passage is all about names. And one of the funny things about uh, this whole set of three letters, it is about a set of numbers. It is about four names. It is about three churches. And it is about two doors, as we will see. The four names we find in this letter to the church in Sardis, they have a reputation, literally a name for being alive, yet they are really dead. But Jesus says, you have a few people, literally names in Sardis, who have not soiled their clothes. And Jesus will never blot their names out from the book of life. Uh, Greek cities maintained a list of citizens in a public register. And if someone was committed of a, a convicted, I should say, of a grievous criminal action and was condemned, they lost their citizenship and their name was erased from the register. Jesus will never blot out the names of those who have not soiled their clothes, but will rather name them 
before God and before his angels. And the theme of this letter is that there are those in this church who claim the name of Jesus, but actually have no authentic identity with him. And they will be exposed one day as not having the name of Jesus. But those who remain faithful to their professed Christian name will be recognized as having a genuine Christian identity. And the victor will be dressed not in soiled clothes, but in white clothes, the clothes of victory, the clothes of purity, and will be acknowledged before the Father. This is the promise Jesus had to those who persevere, that he will acknowledge them before the creator of all. You see, to be Christian is not about what you call yourself or even about how those among you see you, but how Jesus sees you. This is a church that is cold. Their name is false. But there is a church that is hot, fiery, with its love and passion for Jesus Christ, even though they are weak. And there is a marvelous promise to the church of Philadelphia. The great east road from Sardis takes us to Philadelphia, uh, even more of a frontier city in the wilds of Asia. Uh, Some people think that uh, Philadelphia was actually planted there as a kind of a a missionary city. Uh, Not a missionary city for Christianity, but a missionary city for the Greco-Roman Empire, a missionary city for Greek culture, if you like, stuck there in order to uh, bring light and life into the the centre of the region, much like Canberra does. Uh, Economically, uh, compared to the other two cities in this uh, section of Revelation, uh, Philadelphia was actually quite a poor city. It, it was new. Uh, it was in an area of substantial seismic activity. Uh, you can see the way in which this affects a city by looking at Christchurch. I have friends who work in Christchurch right now among uh, students in churches and in businesses, and people are leaving Christchurch. Because the continued seismic activity makes it an unpredictable place to live, uh, Fewer and fewer people are coming there. Many people are moving out. And Philadelphia experienced this same thing themselves. It had been destroyed in AD 17. uh, Built back again, but not nearly as impressive as uh, Sardis or Laodicea. But also it had an additional penalty upon it. Uh, In AD 92, Domitian, the emperor, uh, decided he wanted there to be more grain produced to feed the empire. And so he actually banned growing grapes for wine in much of Asia. Philadelphia's main crop was grapes. And they, so they suffered enormously. They suffered enormously not just as a city, but within their city the Christians suffered I know your deeds, Jesus says. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I know your deeds, he says. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a church which is faithful despite their little strength. And they do so in a context of terrible oppression. I will make those who are of a synagogue of Satan, the, the Jews who oppress them. And we know particularly in the, that in this region of Asia, the Jewish synagogues went out of their way to persecute Christians. I know that you have little strength, but I have placed before you an open door. There's a really important insight about the nature of faith here. Here is a church which has little strength, and yet Jesus has placed before them an open door. The open door is the notion of the door to salvation. Jesus has set before them a wide open door. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But this church has little strength. They will go through that door. They have little strength. They have endured. Uh, You see, when we think about faith in our culture, we tend to think about it because we are uh, are modernist or at least postmodernist and therefore fundamentally rationalist. We think about faith as something, uh, as a means of belief. It's something which philosophers call uh, epistemological. And, And so you'll often see, for example, in the debate between the new atheists and Christians, uh, the discussion, the comparison between science as a way of knowing things and faith as a way of knowing things. Isn't that true? Uh, And we compare them, we say, well, science is a way of knowing things by applying a rational empirical process, a repeatable method by which repetition we come to know things that are sure and certain, and faith is a means of knowing things by which we kind of shut our eyes and Step out into the strange darkness. And and so uh, you sometimes hear people say something like, I wish I had your faith. Have you ever heard that said before? I wish I had your faith. Maybe you've thought that. Uh, Maybe you've you've looked at a, a missionary, for example. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you've looked at a Christian and you thought, I wish I had your faith because you see in their obedience, you see in their perseverance, you see in their extraordinary acts, something good and true and wonderful. You recognize the pernicious slavery of consumerism and just the banality of the little things of this day and age and you want to do something great and true and you wish you had their faith. And yet here is a church that has little strength. I think that's meant to say little faith. They're little. And yet, they are enduring in extraordinary way. What's, how? And we have to understand that faith is not something that is in fact epistemological. The Bible does not present faith as a means by which you come to know something. When the Apostle Paul travels around the cities in Acts, he does not appeal to people to shut their eyes and leap into the darkness. He reasons with them. He demonstrates, he proves, he uses the language of rational argument and persuasion. He presents the facts, he appeals to people's minds. How do people come to believe in the gospel? You don't come to believe in the claims of Jesus by faith. You come to believe by using your minds, which is why you must read books. Otherwise, your minds will turn into porridge. 
And they will not be useful for evaluating or considering things like the gospel anymore. No, you come to be Christian by thinking, by reflecting, by considering. And then, once you are persuaded that it's true, faith is what comes next. Faith is not epistemological. It's not about how you know. Faith is relational and ethical. It's about how you respond. And this is a church with little strength, but a great response. And despite their little strength, Jesus places before them an open door that no one can shut. I think this echoes one of the great and most powerful passages in all the scriptures uh, from Romans chapter 8. What are we to say about these things, says Paul? If God is for us, who is against us? We did not, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against those God has chosen? God is the one that justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes us for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the certainty of the salvation of the church in Philadelphia does not rest upon their strength. It rests on the power of King Jesus who holds open the door. And you will have times when you feel weak. And you will have times when you doubt and feel feeble. When you're confused and you feel distant from God. When you feel alienated from Him. You'll have all these times. We find them in the Psalms. The psalmists crying out in pain and anguish. Their sense of loneliness and isolation from the one who made them. But in those times you must remember it is not the strength of your belief that guarantees you a place in kingdom but the strength of the one who holds the door open and he will never let it close. No wonder the Philadelphians were on fire. They know from his promise that those who are victorious I will make pillars in the temple of my God. In the city of Sardis affected so much uh, by uh, uh, constant seismic activity, the temple on the hill was the most secure building in the city. It was the only thing that had not been affected. What they did was quite remarkable. They took sheepskins. Finally, good use for sheep. They took sheepskins, laid them down along the ground on bundles of hay, and then they built on top of that. So the, the temple kind of surfed on the top of the hill. And then the great stone blocks were cramped together with iron. And the pillars were placed round and bolted into place. 
the image Jesus says is to those who persevere, even with their little strength, they trust that Jesus is holding the door open for him. He will make them like a pillar in his temple. They will never be removed. And then thirdly, we come to the church in Laodicea. We've had one church that is hot. We have one church that is cold. And then we have Laodicea. Laodicea is not on fire for Jesus the way Philadelphia was. But it's also not quite as bad as Sardis. Not cold like a corpse as they were. What will Jesus have to say to them? Will he say, buck up, do a bit better. You can get there. You're almost home. Is that what he'll say? Laodicea was 160 kilometers east of Ephesus, the original city in our group of seven. It lay in the great Meander River Valley, from which we get the word, by the way, to meander. This river just wandered back and forth on itself. And it led all the way down to the coast uh, near, uh, well, the Great Valley where it opened up on the coast was kind of opposite where Patmos was. Patmos where John was writing this letter uh, of Revelation. And uh, Laodicea also sat at the junction of two major trade routes. The north-south road uh, connecting Pergamon with the region of Atalia, and then the road which connected Ephesus with the east. And so by any world standards, it was a major commercial center. No surprise then in verse 17 that Laodiceans, when they speak of themselves, say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But Jesus says, you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Laodicea was a proud city. Do you remember I talked about the earthquakes? There was a particularly large earthquake in AD 60, uh, after which again the Roman Empire had rebuilt a number of Asian cities. Do you know what was the one city that refused help from the Roman Empire? It was Laodicea. Why? Well, they didn't need help. They could do it on their own. They didn't need charity. They were rich. They were successful. If anyone was going to make things right, it would be them. And in that statement, I think we find the heart of much of nominal Christianity. Which says, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I need nothing. What does Jesus say to this church? 
which is neither hot nor cold. Well, he uses a hot-cold parable. Uh, nearby in Hierapolis, there were hot mineral waters where you went to bathe. Has anyone ever bathed in hot mineral waters? Was it nice? Yes. It was nice. It smelled like urine, but it was nice. The hot waters of Hierapolis, they were famously medicinal. Uh, nearby was Colossae, and Colossae was famous for its spring, cold, drinkable, pure, life-giving. But Laodicea is neither hot nor cold. It's just lukewarm. And Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is not interested in our scraps. The church of Laodicea had one foot in different camps. No doubt that their wealth came partly by the fact that they dallied with the pagan cults and the guilds and the cult of the emperor. And at the same time, they went to church on Sundays and it all seemed to work out fine. They were respected in their local community because they engaged in the local religion and pursued. And also they had a place in their church, a place where they could go and do church in a nice community where they talked about nice things. There is an irony in which Jesus speaks to them here. Laodicea was famous for its banking institutions. It had a medical school known for its ophthalmological practice, which is a little bit terrifying given the first century, but nonetheless. And also the region's eye salve, right? A paste to put in your eyes to make you see better, presumably after you took the paste off. And it was famous for its textile trade as well. So many things to be proud about, to be confident in. And yet Jesus says to the center of banking, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Real wealth, he says. Come to me for real wealth so that you may be truly rich. Buy from me white clothes from the center of textile. The irony of saying that you just don't have the right clothes. You need white clothes. You need pure clothes. You need to come to me for forgiveness, Jesus says, that your shameful nakedness may not be exposed. And ointment, ointment for the center of ophthalmology, so that your eyes may truly see. There is, in much of the world today, and particularly in the West, a trend within the church to be comfortable. To have a little bit with Jesus, a little bit in the world, a little bit invested in Christianity, a little bit invested in our savings, because we trust in our savings, they will keep us safe. In our relationships, because they will make us happy. In our success, because that will give us status. That is to be lukewarm. Jesus does not want our scraps. He insists on having all of us. And if not, these passages speak of judgment. Did you see that in 3 verse 3? Repent. 
Or, if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come against you. What is this? Jesus coming against someone? This doesn't seem to fit. Where's a nice Galilean teacher in this image? Jesus coming against you? Surely that is the worst sort of fanaticism, or the worst kind of religion. Judgment. The dirty little secret of Christianity. And yet, this book of Revelation is not ashamed to speak about the judgment that is to come. In Revelation verse 20 we read, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated upon it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Remember, I know your works, says Jesus, by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Does anyone else find this passage uncomfortable? Most of my family is not Christian. Many of my friends do not follow Jesus. I find this very, very hard. And yet I'm reminded that as Jesus stood on the hill overlooking Jerusalem, Jerusalem which was about to be judged, it was he who wept over its fate. And though I ache for the truths that are in here and the truth that people will one day be judged. I know I do not weep as Jesus weeps. We as a culture are very uncomfortable with any notion of judgment. That arises too from our culture of modernity. Uh, Part of modernity was a rejection of the notion that there might be some kind of transcendent set of goods and evils. Uh, It's remarkable, Tim Keller observes, that uh, science and magic both arose at the same time, funnily enough, in our culture. They arose because they both sought to control the world and to resist the notion that there might be anything which stood above us in terms of power and authority. Because modernity is rooted around the elevation of my personal rights. It seems impossible to believe that anyone would have the right to decide when it might be appropriate for me to have sex or how I ought to use my money. It seems impossible that anyone might have the right to sit in judgment upon me one day. Ironically, of course, this is a particularly and almost uniquely Western objection that we have. Most cultures in the world don't object to judgment at all. They assume that that is what a God must do if a God loves. What they object to is a God who forgives. Most cultures find the idea of a forgiving God deeply offensive. And frankly, for most people I've met who've ever come to understand the idea of a forgiving God, the first thing they think is it's offensive too. Can someone really Go scot-free, no matter what they've done? It 
it does raise the question as to why our particular Western objection to Christianity should trump other objections to Christianity. Uh, and it raises the question about maybe, maybe Christianity is in fact a t- transcultural truth that offends every culture at some level. We ask when we think of judgment, how is it possible that a God of judgment could actually be a God of love? How is that possible? And yet the Bible makes totally clear that God's judgment of humankind springs not from some deep-seated malevolence, but rather it arises because God loves. That is why he judges. Psalm 145, for example, verses 17 and following says, The Lord is gracious in all his ways and gracious in all his acts. The Lord is near to all who call on him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all who, those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. Why? Well, if you've ever had someone who has been deeply hurt in your life, someone whom you treasure, someone who you love, you will know how love leads to judgment and how a God who does not judge but lets the wicked go free is not loving at all. A God who truly loves, a God who is, as described in the Bible, pure love, cannot let anything go by that harms what he loves. But Revelation suggests an even deeper reason why God might judge. And it comes from Revelation chapter 5. The worthiness of the Lamb to be worshipped. When he took the the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and people and nation. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne. The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The reason that God judges is because the highest moral duty we have is to worship Jesus. I knew a... A girl once who was telling a friend of mine a story about her father. She said, my father is a good man in so many different ways. He's a successful businessman who is known by his employers as a caring boss. He pays them well. He's generous with them. He has a significant role in the local community of the country town in which he is. He's the head of the Rotary Club. He's known to uh, begin philanthropic works. Uh, He heads up the local charity drive. Uh, He is a respected person. When he walks down the street, people want to cross over and speak to him and say hello because he is a good man, but he beats my mum. He beats my mum. Is that man a good man? Well, of course not. 
Because all these other relationships where he does well, they are, they are good relationships, sure. But in the, the point that where the relationship, which is the most important one in his life, his most significant responsibility and obligation, at that point, he is wicked and therefore he is an evil man. And you may be a very nice person. You may be kind. You may have brought socks and soup this week. But if you don't do right in the most important relationship in your life, the relationship with a God who has made you, who gives you life, whom if you ignore, you're a thief. For you take without honoring the one from whom it comes. If you, in that one most crucial relationship in your life, refuse to give him the honor he deserves, then you stand under his judgment. Except for the two doors. One of the things that just blows me away about this final letter to Laodicea is what Jesus does in response to the lukewarmness of the Laodiceans. He warns them. He warns them that he will spit them out. And yet he tells them that he tells them this because he loves them. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. He loves them and he wants them to turn around. And so here he is, the king, the creator of the whole world. The one who loved them and made them and blessed them and gave them life and gave them riches, made them who they are. The one who came and died on the cross, who gave up his life so that they might be lived. The one who carried all their sins of the judgment of God. The one who has now been elevated, who's deserving of all glory and all praise, who's surrounded by the angels and the elders in constant song. And what does he do? He comes and he knocks at the door. Do you know a king who knocks? Do you know a president who doesn't have people there prepping beforehand, opening the doors, making sure that there are the walls aligned? Jesus stands at the door and he knocks for he is humble and he is waiting for you to open the door. He stands at the door, the greatest king the world has ever seen, humbly knocking on the door, waiting for you to open and let him into your life. He stands at the door and he knocks. He came and he died for you. He wrote the letter of revelation for you. He has sent you Rowan. He has sent you me. He has sent you your staff workers and your review group leaders he has sent you all these things and now he stands at the door and he knocks for he is humble and he is waiting for you to let him in. And this king who knocks on the door, do you know what he'll do when you open the door? He will hold the door for you and he will never let it be closed again. Do you know of a king who holds doors? Do you know of a king who will hold a door for you? 
this king has come. He has come to you today. He knocks on the door. And if you open the door of salvation, he will hold it for you forever. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.